0: Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from past audiobooks and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. This show will get the words out. And now... Here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you very much, Mr. Announcer, for that lovely introduction. This is, of course, Tom Zania. And as always, welcome to you voice actors, writers of all kinds, and audiobook listeners. We are, of course celebrating the spoken word. And this is Tom Reeder's Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. So what to do today? You know, I, I've, I feel like I'm sort of burned out. I mean, not, I, I don't mean in a bad way that, you know, I don't like doing this. I do like doing this very much, but I'm burned out in the sense that I don't know what else to give you. Um, I I only had so much stuff that uh, spoken word stuff that I could play for you. And the only thing I can do is keep replaying it. Now, obviously I don't have that many listeners and I don't want to lose the, the listeners that I already have. So it's you know it's a bit of a conundrum um obviously i you know i want to keep you here i want to i want to read your story that's the title of the show and um that's not necessarily working out because i'm not getting any emails from anyone so i have to pretty much hunt down everything myself and read someone's story uh through my own efforts and that's fine, but even that gets difficult. So I'm constantly on the lookout for stuff that I find intriguing, stuff that I think would sound good uh, on the show uh, that might strike up a conversation. And uh, right now, uh, I mean, we are down to one podcast a week. And I didn't say that last week. Uh I wasn't quite ready to announce it, but we are down to one podcast a week and I think it's going to be on a Wednesday, which is today. And uh, and I don't really have anything. So I think I think what I'm going to do is just sit here and think. Now, you have to forgive any long pauses that you hear it doesn't mean that you should stop listening you can keep listening it's just me thinking about what the heck to do so let's see well there's always the facebook articles or postings of whatever you want to call it um you know Give me a minute. I'll be right back. Jeff Corey was a great Hollywood character man who became blacklisted in 1951. In the book Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, Corey recounts his extraordinary story. Among the actors who would soon fill his classes were James Dean, Kirk Douglas, Jane Fonda, Rob Reiner, Jack Nicholson, and Leonard Nimoy. In 1962, when the blacklist ended, Corey was one of the industry's first trailblazers to seamlessly reboot his acting career and secure roles in some of the classic films of the era, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, True Grit, and Little Big Man, in which he starred as the infamous Wild Bill Hickok. His memoir, which he wrote with his daughter Emily Corey, provides a unique and personal perspective on the man whose teaching inspired some of Hollywood's biggest names to star in the roles that made them famous. Improvising Out Loud, My Life Teaching Hollywood How to Act, written by Jeff Corey with Emily Corey. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. Okay. Okay. All right. So I think at least for today, I'm gonna do some I'm gonna do something that you've seen done on television, specifically for situation comedies, and maybe in more dramatic TV shows as well. It's the event on television for, for a show called a clip show a clip show as many of you may already know is when clips of old shows are put together to be seen again possibly because maybe it's a ratings thing or 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 maybe they the writers couldn't come up with an episode maybe that type of thing but that that i think is what we will do today now i i you know i i don't get any messages or i haven't got any messages from listeners so far i hope i don't get messages now uh but that's just the way it is at least this week we we need to i need to put something out once a week you know i i did I started out with the bright idea of doing three podcasts a week. And that worked for, I don't know, three or four weeks, maybe three weeks. And that just got too difficult. And also, uh, I went down to two podcasts a week. And for the same reason that uh, that was also a problem, and now we're down to one. So you see the you you see the writing on the wall for this show. Okay. Um. So what I'm doing, and I'm repeating myself, but th- what I'm doing is for today, we're going to do a clip show, and I'm going to start out with something I did uh, a year or two ago, I think it was two years ago. Um, But um, I got kind of on a kick of doing recordings of Carl Sagan, of his speeches or his writings. And this in particular is called Man in His Arrogance. And this is mostly, this is Sagan being critical okay, uh, this is man not realizing just how small he is in the universe, and that we as, I guess, a a species need to understand that, um, you know, we can't do everything we want right away, and that makes me think about the, um, this whole coronavirus thing, everyone is so sick of it. Um, me included. Um, just so tired of of not hearing enough positive news about the end of this thing, and and just sort of sitting back and going, okay, how many, you know, how many people people have we lost today or last week, you know, and and it's what we have to understand. Is we need to to let science do what it does for us, and that means wearing a mask at the store or wherever in public, and uh, and just doing the best we can. You know, I could say something snarky like, uh, you know, the religious people are mad because God isn't helping them, and they don't want to say that. But I won't say that. (laughs) I won't say that. Um, But anyway, getting back to what I'm going to play right now. This is by Carl Sagan, and this is called Man in His Arrogance. Man in His Arrogance by Carl Sagan. See that star? It might not be there anymore. It might be gone by now, exploded or something. Its light is still crossing space, just reaching our eyes now. But we don't see it as it is. We see it as it was. Many people experience a stirring sense of wonder when they first confront this simple truth. Why? Why should it be so compelling? the immense distances to the stars and the galaxies, means we see everything in the past, some as they were before the Earth came to be. Telescopes are time machines. Long ago, when an early galaxy began to pour light out into the surrounding darkness, no witness could have known that billions of years later, some remote clumps of rock and metal ice and organic molecules would fall together to form a place that we call Earth. And surely nobody could have imagined that life would arise and thinking beings evolve who would one day capture a fraction of that light and would try to puzzle out what sent it on its way. We can recognize here a shortcoming in some circumstances serious in our ability to understand the world. Characteristically, willy-nilly, we seem compelled to project our own nature onto nature. Man, in his arrogance, thinks himself a great work worthy of the interposition of a deity, Darwin wrote in his notebook, more humble, and I think truer, to consider himself created from animals. We're Johnny-come-latelys. We live in the cosmic boondocks. We emerged from microbes and muck. Apes are our cousins. Our thoughts are not entirely our own, and on top of that, we're making a mess of our planet and becoming a danger to ourselves. The trapdoor beneath our feet swings open. We find ourselves in bottomless freefall. We are lost in a great darkness, and there is nobody to send out a search party. Given so harsh a reality, of course, we are inclined to shut our eyes and pretend that we are safe and snug at home, that the fall is only a bad dream. If it takes a little myth and ritual to get us through a night that seems endless, who among us cannot sympathize and understand? We long to be here for a purpose, even though, despite such self-deception, none is evident. The significance of our lives and our fragile planet is then determined by our own wisdom and courage. We are the custodians of life's meaning. We long for parents to care for us, to forgive us of our errors, to save us from our childish mistakes. But knowledge is preferable to ignorance. Better by far to embrace the harsh reality than a reassuring fable. Modern science has been a voyage into the unknown, with a lesson in humility waiting at every stop. Our common sense intuitions can be mistaken. Our preferences don't count. We do not live in a privileged reference frame. If we crave some cosmic purpose, then let us find ourselves a worthy goal. You know, I've said this before on the podcast. I've said when you dig through old recordings, you find out how good they were, or or how bad they were. But this, I really think, is good. And yeah, and you you know you you kind of look back and go, "Geez, you know, I was just starting out back then, and I guess I must have gotten lucky because it <laughs> it seems to have stood the test of time." as far as um, showing the, the good quality of my work. But anyway, uh, enough about me. <laughs> enough about me. This, is, this show is supposed to be for you. Come on. So definitely. And, and, and speaking of the show just being for you, uh, you can write. You've got my email address. I say it a million times on just about every show. Tom reads your story at yahoo.com Tom reads your story at yahoo.com comments stuff you'd like me to perform for you whatever that is where I am at now so go ahead send a message uh and like I said um I thought this one was pretty good but the, the next one I'm going to I'm going to play for you um uh, And by the way, if you're just joining us, this is the clip show. This is the show where we didn't know what else to do. So we just I'm just putting some old stuff in that has already been on. So anyway, this is from a great writer by the name of Steve Vernon, who uh, is one of my Facebook friends, but he was one of the first authors who allowed me to go ahead and uh, narrate one of his books. The name of the book is, uh, oh my God, don't tell me I forgot it. Oh, of course, of course. I Know Why the Waters of the Sea Taste of Salt uh, by Steve Vernon, Canadian writer, who I, I think I said before lives in, not Newfoundland, New Brunswick, I think. Uh, in Canada. And um I think he's a terrific writer. And I I hope that if you are into audiobooks, check out Steve Vernon, his books. Check out any one of his books. Um especially the ones that I have done uh, because I might I might make 25 cents or 30 cents or something like that. So go ahead, go to audible dot com and check out Steve Vernon's work. Anyway This is from I Know Why the Waters of the Sea Taste of Salt by Steve Vernon. I Know Why the Waters of the Sea Taste of Salt. My father swore I was born with a full set of teeth. He claimed that my birth cord twisted like an eel in the midwife's hand, biting her as I bit my way out of my mother's womb. I still remember that taste. It tasted of salt, it tasted of tears, it tasted of seawater. I was born in Okinawa and moved to Tokyo to live with my grandfather. My mother was Chinese, my father claimed that she was Okinawan, his lie fooled no one. I have three countries, three stories and three songs, Okinawa, Japan and China. My life has sprung from many waters, and my father cursed my birth shortly after my mother died. Listen to the sea. The waves tell the same story many times. All that I have to remember my father by is a letter scrawled in my mother's blood and a small wooden sculpture, a netsuki we called it in Japan. A practical Chinese man would call it trash, My father was an Okinawan fisherman and might have tied the charm to his net for luck, but instead he gave the sculpture to my grandfather, who in turn gave it to me. My father wrote in that blood-stained letter, I was born of the sea, not on the sea or in the sea, but of the sea. Your mother fell asleep by the water waiting for your father to come home from the sea my grandfather told me. In the morning she awoke with child. She died clutching the memory of your birth pain into the twisted grain of this small wooden sculpture. Now, years later, I soar over the waters of Okinawa in a small Oka kamikaze plain. Nothing more than a pair of thin wooden wings, a trio of solid-fuel rocket engines, and a cockpit strapped with the body of a 1,200-kilogram bomb. We call it Oka, Cherry Blossom, because it is said that a pilot who successfully crashes his plane into the belly of an American ship will fly up to heaven like the petals of a cherry blossom on a divine wind. The Americans call the plane Baka, or Fool, and maybe they are right. I have seen the ashes flying in the wind. A light rain fell upon the waves, small wet kisses from the sky showered down. In the distance I saw puffs of smoke, the guns of the American invasion fleet pushing like gray metal waves towards the Okinawa shoreline. The ocean waves were forever. They were always coming, forward, forward, like the wind they must forever return. War was forever. It would never end. It was in men's nature to butcher themselves over imagined slights, to fight for a bit of dirt, a handful of water, a dream. When I dreamed, my memories tasted of amniotic salt and a mother's tears. I knew the Americans were out there. I saw their ships pushing towards Okinawa. Their planes raped the clouds and sliced the sky. Their soldiers crawled upon the beaches and overtook us. I was unafraid and ready to die here in my plane. I have always loved flying. I remembered one morning when I was only nine years old, standing on the mountainside, flying my dragon kite. The mountain opened up and spoke to me. A great dark stony jaw opened in the shadows of the mountain. It spoke to me in words that sounded like waves, smashing upon the rocks. I did not know what the mountain said to me, but I listened. I fingered the piece of nutski my father left me. My grandfather gave it to me on my sixth birthday. A serpent painted soft green, its arcing curve artfully sculpted into the sway of a charging rampant wave. Not a dragon... "'but a serpent as large as a dragon nested in my open palm. "'Such was my life. "'Okinawan, Japanese, Chinese. "'I was a river born from many streams. "'My life was a mirror of seawater flowing backward, "'the time and tide slipping away like a long-burning fuse. "'I was a moment in search of experience. "'I was a dream.' waiting to be awoken. I was born dying of the future while dreaming of an unremembered past. You are neither land nor water, my grandfather said. You are the wind moving over the waves, the clouds pissing down upon the dirt, the lightning stroke, the laughter of thunder. You are a storm blowing hard and fast and gone before you know it. All go and no stop. This is the way of young men always, and for you, young Toryu. that is the way of your life. I give this bit of Netski to you. Touch it when you are lonely. It will bring you strength. I don't know who carved this small Netsky. It was carved out of a wood that felt like stone as smooth as a small polished egg, a seed of darkness waiting to grow. My father left instructions along with his blood-stained letter, bidding my grandfather give both to me on my sixth birthday. Sixes are lucky, my father wrote, and you will need all the luck the skies can give. I touched the release button that would cut me loose from the great Hamaki bomber that bore me out over the sea. Soon... I would be close enough to the American fleet to see their ships. Soon I would hunt and hurtle myself down upon them like a hawk, like a wind, like a thunderbolt. I would crash and burn, but my soul was as light as a chrysanthemum petal, caught in the wind. My heart would float upon the waves, my eyes burn in the sunrise, and my spirit would dwell in the mountain hall of heroes. But what do ashes know of dreams? Higher. I urged into the tinny, static-clogged speakerphone that linked the bomber and I. I need to be higher. A man could see forever if he only climbed high enough. That is what the mountains reached for. That is why the clouds dreamed of heaven. The sea drank from the tears of the sky and sweat them back up in soft, mist-ridden memories. We hurtled forward. My bomber friend and I nested below like a shadow, like an echo, like a bomb. He rode above me in his airplane, a great eagle, the hamaki long and cigar-shaped, and beneath its fuselage, my oka. An egg waiting to be born, an explosion waiting to soar upon the burning wind. I have waited for this moment forever. This dream has haunted me for as long as I have breathed. I saw myself rising from the waves and sweeping down over the enemy, a great monsoon of meat and metal and vengeance. I was too young to fly with the great heroes who pounce like tigers upon the sleeping dreadnoughts of Pearl Harbor. I was too young to have flown at Midway. We were winged tigers roaring upon our enemy. The Americans could not stop us, and then we came to a corner in our path. Something turned, something twisted, and we began to lose. I was young and foolish and cheered when our country's circumstance grew so dire that they were forced to allow even the youngest men a chance to fly. I joined the Navy despite my grandfather's wishes. He had been a soldier in the Japanese Army, and he wanted me to follow in his footsteps. There are planes in the Army, too, he said. He was right, but the planes of the Army were for reconnaissance. They looked and spied where I would rather act. I followed darker dreams, dreams old beyond my grandfather's years. Now I would finally have my chance. I longed to revenge my country's misfortunes. We had roused a sleeping giant and were forced into retreat and surrender as wave after wave of American carriers, warplanes and men rolled over our diminishing forces. And that, I think, is a wonderful short story by the great Steve Vernon, who, you know, he's one of those Facebook friends that I don't always communicate with. Once in a while, I'll say, hey, how's it going? You got something for me to no. Uh Lately, uh, it hasn't worked out, but he's great. He really is a terrific writer. Steve Vernon. Look for him at audible.com okay so this was it this was my very first clip show i didn't know what else to do so i i hope you if you're listening that you don't mind that we had a clip show a lot of people don't like clip shows when they see them on tv but this isn't tv this is audio so i did my first clip show and no doubt and you know i i it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's something I'm not going to lie about. It's likely to happen again. So that means you can write if you have something you would like read. And in the meantime, I'm going to look for stuff that intrigues me that I'll perform. And next week, I'm not sure. We'll We'll see what goes on. So that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please. Tell your friends and have them tell their friends. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com to send in your written material for me to perform or if you have specific questions about getting into the voiceover business or biz. As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for this wonderful chance at having a continuing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you decide to come back soon. Have a great rest of your day. And take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.